Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Today, I want to ask you, if you would, to take the Bible and open it with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 2 for this morning's message and for the time that we have together here today. This morning, we're beginning a brand new sermon series that Lord willing will be in for the next seven to eight weeks, where we're looking at what God said many years ago to the seven churches of Asia Minor. These were literal, real-life churches that God had a specific message for, but I believe in them there's also a message for this church, Crosslink Community Church, but there's also a message for every single one of us individually. I don't know about you this morning, but we have lived in a day for the last few years where we are constantly uh, receiving tons of information. Of course, the pandemic began and there were all the shutdowns and there were all the mandates and all the restrictions and all the unknowns of what was happening with COVID. But in the midst of all of that that has transpired, there's been all the political unrest. Now there's the uncertainty with the economy and with inflation. There's all sorts of news reports of what's happening with all the different unrest in different parts of the world. And if you're like me, I can honestly tell you that every single week, there is just an absolute barrage of information. Beyond what's happening on the global scene, beyond what's happening even here in our country, the truth is that even in our own personal lives, there's a lot that is going on. I realize our situations are all different, but my wife and I, in this season, we have four beautiful and wonderful children that cover sixth grade to 12th grade. They've all been playing sports, which means there's a lot going on in our household. Every single week, there's a long list of things to do and places to be and assignments and responsibilities and conversations and ministry needs and all these different things. Frankly, in our lives, there's a lot of noise, a lot of noise. But I believe what God is wanting us to see in this moment and for a time such as this is that in the midst of all the circumstances, in the midst of all the noise, even in the midst of the difficulties and uncertainties in which we face, God is bigger than all of that. God is greater than all of that. And even though there's a lot of noise and a lot of information flying back and forth, there is something that God is wanting each of us to hear. There's something that God is saying even to the church today, even in difficult times, while God is not the source of sin and suffering, even in difficult times, God is still speaking if we will listen. I'm reminded of that as I think back of my teenage years when I was 15 years old, that my life was like a normal 15-year-old. I was caught up in my academics and caught up in my friends and caught up in my sports and that was my focus and that was my love. But God allowed a series of events in my life that frankly were painful and difficult and hard and yet through it, God brought me to a place of stillness to sense what he was saying in my life. I was 15 years old and there were two specific men in my life that were, they were like heroes, if you will. They were like mentors. They were the men that I loved and looked up to and respected. They were my uncle major, he was my great uncle, and my granddaddy, my granddaddy Willis. Uncle Major and his wife Thelma were unable to have children, so what that means is they adopted me and my siblings as their own in many ways. They used to come spend the weekend with us for a month at a time, and every one of those visits would end with ice cream and a trip to the toy store. He was my favorite uncle, okay? At 15 years old, I will never forget him getting sick and going through a very short battle with cancer and suddenly passing away. And my life was devastated in that moment. 
Six days later, my grandfather, Granddaddy Willis, died of an unexpected massive heart attack. And I remember at 15 years old, grieving and being so sad and wondering, how could God let this happen? And, and I thought that's as bad as it could get. But the truth is, that very same summer, I went to a basketball camp, and I was so excited for this camp. I didn't realize how much, frankly, sports had become the God and idol of my life. But there I was at basketball camp, and I was so excited because there were college scouts at this camp watching and I was convinced if I did my best, I was going to be the next NBA player, the next Michael Jordan. <laughs> a little vertically challenged, but nonetheless, I had high hopes and ambitions. And I remember that basketball camp, the final minute of the scrimmage, doing everything that I could to impress the scouts and people that were watching. And I made a move in the post, in the paint that I was bold to make, but foolish to make. And the next thing I know, I had torn every ligament in my right ankle. That will just bless you as a 15-year-old, Okay. What I'm saying is I felt like my life was shattered. I was grieving, I was hurting, I was upset, I was angry. But God in his grace allowed that season of hurt and grief to get me still, to get me silent, to where I would finally begin to look to him to say, God, what are you doing? What is it that you're wanting to say in my life? How are you working through these circumstances? Is there something you're wanting me to hear? It would be that very same summer that God would speak so clearly in my heart and life to call me to preach. And today, I thank God for that season of my life. Now, to be clear, I still miss those faithful men and heroes that I looked up to. And still to this day, I don't run as fast as I used to. And still to this day, when winter comes and it gets really cold, I have pain in one part of my body, in my right ankle. But the truth of the matter, it was through that time that God spoke so clearly. Today we begin a sermon series entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? And I believe that me is referencing to Jesus. It's like Jesus is looking at the church today. He's looking at you and I who profess to be followers of Christ and he's asking the question, in light of all that's going on in the world, in light of all the information, in light of all the nonsense, he's cutting through the noise and he's asking, can you hear me now? Many of us hear that question, can you hear me now? And our mind goes to a popular cell phone ad that has been made famous throughout recent years. We see the images in our mind of the little guy walking around on the television commercial and he's saying, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And then he pauses and says, good. If you're a cell phone owner, you understand what it's like to lose a call, to miss a message, for there to be static and cause there to be misunderstanding and confusing. Where God cuts through all the confusion, there's a message I believe that he wants us to hear right now for a time such as this. It's the message that he gave to seven literal churches there in Revelation chapter two. Jesus, there in that early church, was speaking to these seven churches to remind them of who he was, to show them where they were and where they needed to be. These seven churches can be studied by many prophetically as it looks at kind of the description of the church from the very beginning even to now over the past 2,000 years. But these churches can also be studied practically because literally these were literal churches that God spoke to that speak into our lives today as a church. But these letters can also and should be studied personally because every single one of these churches was comprised of individual believers who needed to hear. And literally every single letter ends with Jesus saying these words, so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I've got a message for the whole group. I've got a message for each church. But each individual 
must hear it and respond accordingly. Today we begin with a church simply known as the church at Ephesus, a church today that I'm calling the cold church. If you're physically able, you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word here in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus speaks and says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. You have perseverance and you've endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. Father, would you, through the Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word? God, I pray that we would hear it. That we would not only hear it, but we would respond in faith, repentance, and obedience. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. The cold church. I wonder this morning if you've ever been in a cold church church. A few weeks ago, we had a series of services that we modified our service times because of a snowstorm that was coming later in the day on a Sunday. And as a result of that, we had a Saturday evening service. We called it our Saturday evening service, Blizzard Edition. For those of you who missed it, it is because as people left, we literally gave them Dairy Queen blizzards and it was a lot of fun. So you missed it on Saturday night for those who weren't here. But I remember having that service that Saturday night and we walked out of the service. I was walking through the lobby and I saw a lady who was a guest that day and she said, Pastor, I love this place, but I have one concern. I said, okay, she said, this is a cold church. And what she was describing as she was sitting there in her winter coat was that she was freezing the entire time she was sitting there. And I had to apologize for the way that this building is designed because on the stage, it's about 20 degrees hotter than it is in the seats out there. So while she was cold, frankly, I was sweating like crazy and felt like I had run a marathon by the time the service ended. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about a cold church. We think of a cold church and we think of a cold church in the way that maybe someone is, is not welcoming. Someone is, is kind of hard-hearted and they're, they're kind of a country club, if you will. They're not very warm to us. That's what we think of. But Jesus in the midst of a church looks and says, let me show you what a cold church might look like. The church at Ephesus would describe such a place. Here in Revelation chapter two, God is giving us a description of letters, messages to seven literal churches. The church at Ephesus was a very important church in the New Testament. It was an important church that sat in a very important city. There in ancient Asia Minor, the church at Ephesus, or I'm sorry, the city of Ephesus was known as the light of Asia or the first city of Asia. Ephesus, for example, was the epicenter of that day of power, of politics, of wealth, and of all commercialism. Ephesus was an incredible city in that day. 
There in that city was a great church, this church at Ephesus. Can you imagine being the church of Ephesus and boasting of the leaders who have been there? None other than the Apostle Paul himself had been their pastor for a few years. Can you imagine being able to say, hey, let me tell you about our pastor, the Apostle Paul. Have you heard of him? Not only was the Apostle Paul, but when the Apostle Paul left, he left a man by the name of Timothy who became their pastor. And not only did Timothy serve there, but John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, also spent time at Ephesus, also in time of leadership and of ministry there. The church at Ephesus is the only church in the entire New Testament to receive letters from two different apostles, the Apostle Paul and now the Apostle John. And yet as God speaks to this church, I believe there's much that he wants to show us today. The question is, will we hear his message? Four things I want you to see about this church at Ephesus and the Lord's message to them. Number one, I want you to be reminded of the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. The Bible says that Jesus speaks and he says this, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. We all know what a lampstand is. We understand that the purpose of a lampstand is that it might give light to the darkness around it. It might give light in the midst, if you will, of a dark environment. In Revelation chapter one, just the previous chapter in verses 21 or so, Jesus specifically tells us what the lampstands are in imagery for. He says in Revelation chapter one, verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, the visual image that Jesus is giving us is this. The lampstand represents the church. That means for every single little church, the local church, even the big C church as a whole, we have one primary purpose. That is this. We are to shine the light of Jesus Christ in the midst of this dark, broken, and fallen world. In other words, the church was never meant to be a country club, an establishment for the elite and the privileged with an us for and no more mentality. Nor were we meant to be a group that would be controlled by the government, that would bow to the pressures of the culture, or that we would ever exist for the wants and whims of the people. The church does not exist to bring God to us so that we can change him into whatever form we want him to be. Instead, the church exists to point all people to God so that we might know him, so that we might love him, so that we might serve him and become more like him. The church exists so that we can be equipped, so that we can be edified, so that ultimately we can share and show the light of Jesus Christ. Our purpose at Crossland Community Church and should be the purpose at every church is to shine bright for Jesus. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said it this way in verse 16. Let your what? Let you, y'all sound very excited about that this morning. Light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. The apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter two, children of God, this is what we're called to be, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. Thank you for your excitement back there. We take note of today. Jesus didn't just say that the church is the lampstand shining the bright light of Jesus. No, here's what he says. He says, I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus wanted to remind the believers in in AD 95, he wants to remind the believers today that he is still walking among the golden lampstands. Picture the scene for just a moment. This early church had understood the reality that Jesus came to this fallen world, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again from the grave and appeared to all those eyewitnesses. 
Jesus had ascended into heaven. He was preparing a place for all who believe. But now AD 95, the church couldn't see the physical presence of Jesus. They couldn't see his, his presence in their midst. They, they knew that the Holy Spirit was there, but they couldn't physically see Jesus with their eyes. And so Jesus says, now listen, I want you to remember something. I'm walking among the church. What a message of comfort. When we go through persecution, when we are mocked for our faith, when we feel rejected, when we feel that the world marginalizes and isolates and rejects the message that we proclaim, what a message of comfort to know. Friend, understand, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. But that is not only a message that comforts. For many, it's a message that convicts. I want you to envision for a moment as we hear this message and as we look at the next several letters in the coming weeks, I want you to envision literally the presence of Jesus walking up and down these aisles, walking up and down every single row, looking at us. And we see this convicting moment when Jesus says something in every one of the seven letters. He says two words. I know what a comfort to know that Jesus knows where we're at. He knows what we're facing. He knows what we're feeling. He knows where life is hard. But what a conviction to know that Jesus knows everything about us. Not just the show that we put on on Sunday morning. Not just the appearance that we have before man. He knows even the very motives and desires and thoughts of our heart. Hebrews chapter four says it this way, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Kitchen decorations in our house might have a plaque that says something like this. Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. We, we hear that with comfort. Oh, the Lord's here. He's in this house. But are we truly living like he literally sees everything and hears every conversation? The Bible tells us that Jesus reminds them of their purpose. There to be a lampstand, a light shining amidst the dark world. But then secondly, I want you to see the praises of this church. Jesus is so full of grace and mercy and compassion. Even though, frankly, there was something to rebuke, Jesus didn't start with the rebuke. I don't know about you, but it can be very easy for us in our selfish, sinful nature to at times when we recognize the imperfections in others, it can be very easy for us to criticize. Jesus didn't start with criticism. He started with words of commendation. There were some things in this church that were praiseworthy. And as we hear these three things, I wanna ask you to kind of pause for a moment and ask yourself, is this true in my life? Is, could Jesus commend this in me or would he have to be critical of this in me? Where do I stand before the Lord? Notice what the praises of this church were, verses two and three and then to verse six. He says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Stop for just a moment. The first thing Jesus praised in this church is this. He praised their sacrificial conduct. When the Bible says that he said, I know your deeds, it's referring to their constant and continual acts of service. They were a people who were not only faithful in serving the Lord, they were busy about serving the Lord, even to the point of sacrifice. Because he said, I know your deeds and I know your toil. The word toil literally means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Let me ask you a question. I, I don't doubt that you've probably been tired before after a long day of work. 
But when was the last time you so zealously, so wholeheartedly, and so faithfully served Jesus day in and day out, week in, week out, month in and month out, that your service to Jesus alone brought you to a point of physical exhaustion? This church is faithfully serving Jesus, sacrificially giving to the Lord, honoring him, and Jesus commended them for it. In the church at Ephesus, for example, there were no one on the sidelines. There were no spectators. There was no, hey, this is Sunday morning, we're gonna sit back and watch. We came to show up for the show. No, every single one of them had their hand to the plow. Every single one of them were working, even to the point of exhaustion, doing what they could for the glory of God. There might have been others in the culture giving in to the great resignation, but they would not dare let this attitude infiltrate their own hearts or infiltrate the church. Everyone was doing their part. I want to remind us this morning, yes, in 2022, this should still be true of every single child of God. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one of us has received a special gift, we should employ it. What does the word employ mean? It means put it to work. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every person created in the image of God has been given skills and abilities that are meant for God's glory and for the good of others. But for every Christian, we not only have skills and abilities, the Bible says he has given us at least one spiritual gift. It is a gift that God imparts to you at the moment of salvation for one primary purpose. It is the purpose of glorifying God through edifying and building up the body of Christ, the church. It is an act of good stewardship when we use that gift to build up the body of Christ, the church. But it is an act of negligence and disobedience to sit on our hands and not use it for the Lord. Our motivation for every single one of us in serving the Lord is that. That no matter what the task, no matter what the gift, whether it's seen by men or never seen at all, that we do it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter three says it this way. So whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Recently, I was speaking with a sister in Christ who was dealing with a major frustration in her life, and she was describing the simple fact that she had been serving, and she had been trying to build a relationship with someone, and she had been trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this specific situation, and she was frustrated, and she was discouraged, and she was even emotional because it seemed like such a waste. Things hadn't turned out the way she wanted them to. Things hadn't been favorable for her. It didn't have the end result that she was looking for. And she confessed to me, I feel like it's just been a waste of time. All my efforts and all those conversations and all that service, it's all just been a waste. But the Bible tells us that what we do for the Lord in service to him is never in vain. It's never in vain. Even a cup of cold water in Jesus' name it's not in vain. Even giving clothes to the person in need, nobody else on this side of heaven may ever see it, but it is not in vain. So faithfully serve the Lord. They were faithful and sacrificial in their service. Number two, they were faithful in their convictions. Now, now this next statement, it, it's almost startling and surprising in our 2022 culture. Listen to the statement, verse two. I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You even put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. Verse six, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
This body of believers at Ephesus looked to the teaching of the apostles, they believed the teaching of the apostles, and from it they formed their convictions of what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was bad. And even though they lived in a culture that was largely compromising and a culture that was constantly going the opposite way of the things of God, they faithfully stood firm in their convictions. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, the apostle Paul had looked at this very church at Ephesus. You can read the scriptures later this week. But the apostle Paul basically looked at the elders and said, now listen, you need to shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Because after I leave, there are gonna be savage wolves that come into your midst. There are gonna be some who come from the outside. There's gonna be some who come from within. And here's what they're gonna do. They're gonna do all that they can to divide and to destroy and to conquer the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you be on your guard against them. Who was he talking about? He wasn't talking about real wolves. He was talking about false teachers. People who would come with doctrines that would turn people away from Jesus. People who would come with compromising actions to lead people into places of immorality and areas of complacency. And the apostle Paul would say, no, you protect the flock of God from these people. First Corinthians, second Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. Listen to what the apostle Paul said. Those who preach anything apart from Jesus Salvation only through Christ. Here's what he says. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Jesus commends them that they did not tolerate false prophets or actions that Jesus considered evil. To be honest, that, that's a bit sobering in our culture because the message of our culture is tolerate. The message of our culture is, if this is what we say, this is what you've got to do. Oh, this is this new scientific discovery, so you've got to accept it regardless of what God's word has spoken. And yet Jesus commended them that they did not tolerate evil men, evil doctrine, or evil behaviors. 2 John chapter 10, 2 John verse 10 reminds us of a word of instruction even in our lives today. Here's what it says. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, listen, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. That's sobering in our culture today. Jesus goes on further to say, even the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the word Nicolaitan there in that context, it literally means to conquer the people. They were trying to mislead the people of God, trying to lead them into actions that they knew were compromising, trying to lead them to beliefs that they knew were wrong. These Nicolaitans, Jesus says, I commend you because you don't tolerate their deeds. And he goes on to say loud and clear in verse six, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus commended them for their sacrificial conduct of service but their faithful convictions, even in the midst of a culture that was largely rejecting him. And finally, he praised them for their bold commitment. He praised them for their bold commitment. The Bible says here in this pastor's scripture something interesting. He says these simple words, you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That word endured, tell me if you've heard this imagery before, literally describes a tree that is planted by the rivers of the water. Its roots grow so deep, the tree stands strong no matter what storm comes, no matter what persecution comes, no matter what circumstance comes their way, it stands firm. Why? Because it has deep roots anchored in the right source. Jesus looks at this church in the city of Ephesus and he says, listen, I wanna commend you. 
You're so boldly standing for my name, even in your culture around you. Someone say, oh, pastor, man, I'll tell you what, that might be true for them, but they didn't have it as bad as we have it today. That church at Ephesus, they didn't have it as bad. They didn't have all the internet. They didn't have all the social media mess. They didn't have all the things we had today. But let me take a moment and just describe to you what was happening in the city of Ephesus in that moment. Ephesus was home to a pagan temple, the temple of Diana. Diana was the goddess of sex and fertility. In the ancient world, people came from all over that place to go to Ephesus for one primary purpose, to worship this pagan god of Diana. We know today that scholars tell us that their primary form of worship was illicit sex with temple prostitutes. And scholars also tell us that there were more temple prostitutes in the city of Ephesus than any other city of the ancient world. So here they are in that culture, filled with all forms and means of immorality, and yet it's not only a place of immorality, it's also a place of idolatry. This large goddess of Diana, literally, there were forms of this, there were places of this that were established. People would literally have little idols, little gods of Diana in their homes as a means of celebration and of worship. It was a culture that was not only immoral, it was not only a culture that was idolatrous, it was a day where extramarital sex was common, society was amused by sorcery, the majority worshiped idols, and tell me if you've heard this before, even the religious leaders of the day were only in it for their own man-made selfish agenda. Sound familiar? Oh, that would never happen today, Pastor Matt. But the truth is, this church in Ephesus even though it lived in such a compromised, immoral, and idolatrous culture, even though they were marginalized for proclaiming the name of Jesus, they boldly and faithfully stood and said, we trust in, we believe in, we are following Jesus. Jesus praised them for it. You know, when you hear these words about their service, their convictions, and their commitment, you almost kind of come to the point where as a pastor, you'd be like, man, we have found the perfect church. I mean, close the book, this is it. I mean, put the banner on the wall, let's make this our mission statement. Be like at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. I mean, this is incredible. But I'm reminded today that there is no perfect church. Or someone once said, if you ever find the perfect church, please do not join it. Because the very moment you join it, it will become imperfect. We're imperfect people living in an imperfect world and there is no church this side of heaven that's perfect. We're being made in the likeness of Christ and one day we're gonna be presented without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but we're not there yet. Jesus looks and changes the whole tone of the letter with one simple word, the three-letter word, but. All these things you have done well, but... This one thing I have against you. And some might argue, man, could you imagine being that church? They've only got one thing that's wrong. That's not that big of a deal. Listen, as a pastor across the like, we've got more than one thing wrong, okay? There, there's a few things we've got to grow in and God needs to do in our lives. But one thing I have against you, but I'm reminded that this one thing was huge. This one thing was serious. This one thing, I don't know if it could have been a bigger thing than what Jesus says. I want you to see thirdly the problem within the church. But I have this against you, Jesus says, 
that you have left your first love. In this moment, what we are seeing is this. Man often gets caught up in the outward appearances of things. This church was busy. Surely they had it all together. This church was faithfully standing for the name of Jesus. They were firm in their convictions. They knew what they believed, why they believed it, and they were going to fulfill what they believed, even if that meant hard things. But Jesus looks beyond all the outward stuff, and he looks directly at the heart. Jesus knew that the heart of the problem in this church and the heart of so many lives and perhaps even in our own lives today, the heart of the problem was the problem of the heart. And here's what he says. I have this against you. You have left your first love. I saw something this week in study that I've never really noticed before, but it stood out to me like loud and clear in the book of Ephesians. The apostle Paul, 35 years earlier, had written to this same church the letter of Ephesus, or what we know today as the book of Ephesians. The apostle Paul, just like normal, he addresses things in the beginning, and he deals with the theology and the doctrine, then he deals with how that doctrine affects their behavior. But when the apostle Paul closed the letter to the church at Ephesians, listen to how prophetic this statement is. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, final verse that Paul closes with 35 years earlier. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with what? Incorruptible love. May the grace of God be extended to you, not just those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, but who love him with an incorruptible love, with a love that stays close, with a love that stays warm, that a love that continues to grow, with a love that doesn't fade, with a love that doesn't die, with a love that doesn't grow cold along the way, but with an incorruptible love. God, God's grace be to you. 35 years later, God would speak through John and he would say, church, you didn't heed the warning. You didn't follow the instruction. You've left your first love. Who's your first love? It's God. First John chapter four, verse 19 says, literally, we love because he first loved us. He first loved us when in spite of our sin, he knew our need for a savior. He first loved us by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins so that all of us could be saved. He first loved us by convicting us of our sin. He first loved us by drawing us to that place of salvation. God is our first love. What he shows us through the church at Ephesus is this. We can get so caught up in our outward perceptions and our outward practices that we lose our passion and fellowship with Jesus. We can get so caught up in our outward actions that we lose the warmth and the affection that we once had for the Lord. I think of this first love expression, and I think specifically for those of us who are married. Perhaps we can relate to that first love experience. Those first love days, those first love feelings along the way. No doubt in those first love moments, you were excited and nervous, anxious and confident and hopeful all at the same time. Maybe in those early days of dating even, you were nervous. You, you've been nervous to ask to hold her hand. In those early days of first love, you looked at each other and you thought, man, how in the world did I ever get so lucky to have you in my life? 
Oh, in those first love days, those feelings are exciting and they're wonderful and they're new and everything seems perfect. And that first love, it leads you to places of commitment and places of devotion. Eventually, you get engaged and you get married and you look at each other and you say, oh, I do, and oh, I do. And then you, you, you have the celebration and you go off to the honeymoon night and everything seems perfect and you wake up the next morning and suddenly you realize that perfect person has bad breath and they need to brush their teeth. That perfect person has to brush their hair. That perfect person, you realize the very next morning, it's not so glamorous as it was at the altar just hours earlier. The reality is you continue on in your life, you continue on in your marriage, and the reality is over years there might be busyness that creeps in and distractions that creep in and pressures that mount and unmet expectations that we didn't even realize we had. Then temptations come and then exhaustion takes place. There's areas of hurt and unforgiveness and all of it can cause us to lose that sense of wonder and excitement and passion that we had at first love. Early on, men... She didn't even have to ask us to do anything for her. We showed initiative and we stepped up to do anything and everything we could for her. Early on, men, we probably even swore, sweetheart, I love you. I'm gonna make you the happiest woman in the world. I'll do anything for you. But perhaps as we begin to lose that first love, we never get the honeydew list done. Maybe she stopped asking altogether because she knows we're never gonna do it. Why? Why? It's not just because we're busy, but because we've lost that first love. Maybe ladies, you remember that time years ago whenever he would come to you and he would put his arm around you and frankly, you wanted nowhere else to be. Something about the warmth of that and the closeness of that. You felt so secure and so treasured and so loved and you thought, I hope hope he'll always keep his arm around me. But over the years with all the other things that are going on, distractions now, when he comes home, you hope for a while he's going to keep his distance because you're tired and just need a break. Leave me alone, buddy. Why? Because perhaps we've lost our first love. You know, we might tease about that and think about that in some context of our marriages or our relationships, but the reality is the same can happen in our relationship with Jesus. When we leave our first love and lose that first love, first love feeling, when we first come to know Jesus, there's amazement for his grace. There is deep appreciation for what he's done. And when we first come to know Christ, there's a hunger to know him more. It doesn't matter if that person's five years old or 55 years old. When that person comes to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior, there's a desire to want to know God more. There's a desire to want to try to understand his word. What does his love letter say to me? What is God saying in my life? There's a desire to pray to him and talk to him. Just like in those early stages of the couple, you wanted to spend time together and talk and be together every waking moment. The fact is, when we come to know Christ, we want to talk to him. We want to sing praises to him. Listen, when we first come to know Christ, we want to be with other believers. We want to come together in church because it encourages us and it feeds us and helps fuel us as we grow further. We want to serve Jesus. I mean, how could we not serve the one who forgave us and called us in that place of darkness? He called us to himself and he forgave us and set us free and brought us from darkness to light. We want to serve him. So often we begin to lose that first love. Our time in God's word becomes, well, I'll get to it if I can. Our prayer life becomes something that we only do in times of crisis and desperation. 
participation, faithfully being in, in church on Sunday mornings with God's people in fellowship, well, you know, it's not that important. I mean, Jesus didn't make that the 11th commandment or anything. It's optional. Oh, serving the Lord? We'll get to it when it's convenient. Well, let's wait for the pandemic to be over and all of life's problems to go away. We often act in those situations like it's not that big of a deal. It's not because it's not a big deal. It's simply because we've lost our first love. And it's not Jesus who's left. It's us. Ephesus had a lot of things outwardly going, but Jesus looks and cuts through the, all the nonsense and says, but you have left your first love. They replaced relationship with religion and grew cold in love, though they were still consistently laboring. In the midst of all their activity, they lost their affection for Jesus. Please understand, a church and a people who loses its love will soon lose its light, no matter how glamorous it appears to be. The final thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see the priority of the church. There, there's an incredible word of grace in this moment. Jesus, like a loving, gracious physician, could not ignore the sobering diagnosis in this church. A prescription. Yes, it's bad. Yes, the report isn't good. Yes, there's something sobering that needs to be addressed. It's a serious thing. But there's hope here. There's life. You can be restored. You, you can be forgiven. You can have that first love again. And Jesus gives them three specific actions that are words of priority for them and for us. Let me give them to you quickly. They are the words remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. Notice what Jesus says. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. If you're here this morning and you have left your first love, Jesus' first word of instruction is this. Remember from where you have fallen. Truth be told, if God is convicting you today that you have left your first love somewhere along the way, it probably will not take you long to put your finger on the exact spot when and where you left your first love. If you don't know the where, I'm gonna ask you this week to begin praying and saying, God, would you show me where? For example, where was it in your life that your priorities got all out of whack? Where was it that you started putting other things in your life before your relationship with God? When was it that you decided that your life was too busy to spend time in prayer and the reading in his word? You had other more important things to do. When was it that you decided your comforts were more important than serving the Lord Jesus Christ by giving your abilities, talents, and gifts for his glory? When was it that you went through that hardship and started being angry towards God and being distant in your fellowship with him? When was it that you experienced that hurt with a brother or sister in Christ or that church? Instead of forgiving and walking forward in grace, you've harbored it and it's now led to resentment and to bitterness. Truth of the matter is, Jesus calls us to remember where we have fallen from. But secondly, he tells us to repent. 
That word repent literally means a change of mind. It gives us the impression of someone that's going one direction and we literally turn from that wrong direction. We turn from that sin. We turn from that place and we turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Church at Ephesus, you're living your life in such a way that your hearts become cold. You don't really love me anymore. You're not serving me for the right reasons anymore. You're not really loving people the way that you ought to anymore. And I'm telling you to call away from that. Turn from that and turn back to me. Turn back to love me. Turn back to live for me. Let me, Jesus is saying, be the motivation for what you're doing. Finally, repeat. What does he say? Loud and clear. Remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. What, what did you do at first when you first had a relationship with the Lord? You couldn't wait to talk to him in prayer. You, you couldn't wait to come together and fellowship. You couldn't, listen, when you first came to know Jesus, my guess is this, once you knew who Jesus was and you knew he'd forgiven you, you could not be silent about him. You wanted others to know. You wanted others to experience the same gift of forgiveness and salvation that you'd experienced. And you told everybody, let's get back to that. Remember that time when you were in that Bible study and you had someone meeting with you and you were wanting to study God's word to understand it and you were so excited about what you were learning and growing in? Get back to that is what Jesus is saying. He's showing us loud and clear that returning to our first love, love is ultimately a choice. We choose to do the right things, the good things that we were committed to when we once were close. In other words, yes, only God can forgive and cleanse, but we do have a part to play in restoring the original fellowship that was broken by our sin and neglect. And that part is this, remember, repent, and repeat the things we did in those early days. Let me close with the final statement. And that is this. Jesus closes with a personal invitation and a personal promise. You know, sometimes along the way, it's easy for us to hide in the group. Especially if the group's large, it's easy to kind of just try to blend in and get in and get out, not be seen or not be known. Truth be told, if you've ever been in church long enough that you've had a bad experience, it's easy to, to throw the church under the bus. Oh, you know, I'd still be doing good if it weren't for this church, this person. But the truth is, Jesus cuts through all those excuses. And he gives a personal instruction and a personal invitation. Yes, church at Ephesus, I have a message for you. But the invitation and the response is personal. He singularly Speaking of mankind, which includes women, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've titled the series, Can You Hear Me Now? But maybe the better question in this moment is this. It's not can we hear Jesus right now, it's will we? Will we hear what he's saying to us personally? And will we heed his invitation? Notice the promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25 tells us something interesting. Peter says, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. 
The truth is, in spite of our failures and imperfections, in spite of the times that we've been unfaithful and left our first love, in grace and mercy, Jesus is calling us today to return to him, to be restored to him. Remember where we've fallen from, repent of our sin, and repeat the things you did at the first. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.